Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in Parshat Vayetze this morning in the book of Genesis. We looked at, because we read on a triennial division, I mean, as most synagogues do, they, most synagogues don't read the entire Parsha because it's so much material. Um, so we just, um, we were in the first year of the triennial reading, so we're at the beginning of every Parsha. But notice, last week we talked about this is the story of Isaac, and already this week we're at the story of Jacob. <laughs> right? So Torah is that terse, and the material on Isaac is that little that last week that, that was his story. Now, of course, we missed two-thirds of that Parsha because um, we're only reading a third, the first third, but we're already now in, in this week's Parsha talking about this is the story of Yaakov. We're going to get the the much longer, beginning of a much longer story about Yaakov. Do the rabbis ever talk about what might have happened in between? I mean, they spend a lot of time talking about what's causing Jacob to be as he is because of what, what it's not written. There's a lot of it in Midrash. So that's a lot of what Midrash is about and what it does is it fills in what's missing. Um, the journey, for instance, of Avraham and Yitzhak to the site of the Akedah, the site of the binding of Isaac, um, that journey is a three-day journey, right? But we only get this, we get one sentence spoken by Isaac, right? You know, like, uh, Dad, like, <laughs> here's all the gear, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God will provide the sacrifice, right? So that's all that's said. But the Midrash can't stand that, right? That It's three days they're walking together. So um, so Midrash does, a, does the work of imagining what happens, um, and particularly when there seems to be a cause and effect that we don't understand. So like you just said, what, you know, Jacob does this because, right? Sometimes we don't know why, right? And so Midrash is all about looking at the text and reading between the lines and changing around the letters um, as a way of playfully getting at why this might have happened um, and what it means. And, uh, and you know, our tradition reads Torah like a love letter from God. And when you read a love letter, you don't read it once and put it down. You're like, why, why a comma there, right? Why dearest Amy and not... Dear Amy, right? Like, what does it, what does it, what does it mean? It must mean something that she chose the word dearest, right? Like, and we read something into every single word and every single nuance and every single choice. And whether it means that or not. Whether it means that or not, right? And half the time, well, of course we can't know what someone meant, but that doesn't stop us from, oh, but, uh-oh, what if dearest isn't better? What if, you know, that means, right? So, the very dearest. The, the very, why didn't it say the very dearest, right? So, and that, that, Work of playing with that is the work of our tradition. It was it was the love the, the rabbis love this stuff. They love this text and they bust it open and they sometimes use it as I demonstrated in my Rosh Hashanah sermon. Right? They sometimes use it dafka to to undo something that has been assumed or has even been stated in Torah. So it's a it's a wonderful, amazing game of millennia long engagement. I think I knew that, but you just made. Made it come alive a little bit, and thank you. But, but the continual studying, like what goes on in, in Torah study, is really a continuation, except we're not documenting. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. But we continue to do that. We continue to mine this for meaning. And to those who had the LA Times, be sure you read the article in today's editorial by Rabbi David Walby. 
about Kirk Douglas turning 100 and his Kirk Douglas talking about why studying the Torah has made so much difference in his life. There you go. And I, I would add that if the Torah were really clear, we wouldn't be still be studying. <laughs> and part of the great thing about the Torah is that it's not clear. And people have said, you know, we got it so we could chew on it. I mean, theoretically, if you believe that God wrote it, which I don't, but if you believe that, God could have been a lot clearer. <laughs> right. A lot less ambiguous. Right. So even, even traditionally, one has to assume that that God wanted it to be ambiguous so that we were, we were the other piece. Amen. Or God had a lousy editor. Or God had a lousy editor. Right. So we're looking at uh, chapter 28 of the book of Genesis where Vayetze begins at, cha- at verse 10. Remember that these verses and chapter breaks were not put in here by Jews. So often we're like, wait, why does the Parsha start at verse 10? Right. Wait, chapters and verses were not done by Jews. The, but Jews did the Parsha. Why did the Parsha? Christians did the chapters and verses. The rabbis divided, in, divided the Torah into portions. But... But the, they were non-Jews who divided the Bible into chapters and verses. They're right. If you look at a Torah scroll or a Chumash, you know, traditionally there, there was no. The break was the parsha, and it's broken up by uh, Aliyah. So you'll see in the cor- on the side, Rishon, Sheni, Shlishi. You know, you'll see it broken into Aliyot. Not broken. The text goes continuously in a in a Bible. A printed Bible, um, but that's that's the important break. That and the parsha. Um, when did they do that? I hate dating stuff. <laughs> well, was it? I'm not sure how early. Era of the Bible. I'm not sure how early it happened. I don't know. It's strange that we would have then Christian verses in our materials. Right. They're so pervasive that that's just. And it's how we reference it now, right? It's that we're starting at 2810, right? Because it's hard to, it's a little hard to reference otherwise. The 25th of Kislev, yeah. Oh, got it. Okay, so let's start at Vayete. Oh, yes. Um, Yaakov left Beersheba and set out for Haran. He came upon a certain place and stopped there for the night, for the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of that place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place. He had a dream. A stairway was set on the ground and its top reached to the sky, and angels of God were going up and down on it. And the Lord was standing beside him and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The ground on which you are lying, I will assign to you and to your offspring. Your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All the families of the earth shall bless themselves by you and your descendants. Remember, I am with you. I will protect you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. All right. Oh, no, go on. Oh, Yaakov woke up from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is present in this place, and I did not know it. 
Shaken, he said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the abode of God, and that is the gateway to heaven. Early in the morning, Yaakov took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He named the site Bethel, but previously the name of the city had been Luz. All right. Why is Jacob leaving Beersheba? Esau wants to kill him. Esau wants to kill him. Why does Esau want to kill him? He stole his birthright. He stole his birthright. And at the end of Toldot, at the end of uh, last Shabbat's Parsha, which we didn't read, um, he has taken also the blessing of his father, who they presumed was dying. And so the Jacob, with his mother's you know, help and prompting, steals the blessing from Esau while he's out hunting, pretends to be Esau, and steals the blessing, and now is a fugitive because Esau is as vowed to kill him. All right. <clears throat> we have this journey from Beersheba to Haran. We've had it before. Who else made this journey from Beersheba to Haran? Hmm. No. On behalf of Abraham. Isaac. His servant. His servant. Thank you, Reuben. Eliezer. Eliezer goes from Beersheba to Haran to find a wife for Isaac. Right? Oh, yeah. So, um, so he, Eliezer, goes with hope, but, you know, a little worried. You know, will he find the right one? But goes pretty securely, knowing that he's going back. We have exactly the opposite situation here, right? Eliezer comes with all of these gifts, right? Remember, we talked about the Hummers filled with, right, goods from Nordstrom and Saks Fifth Avenue and, right, and the thirsty camels, the thirsty Hummers, right, that come rolling in uh, to Haran. The exact opposite here, that Yaakov comes with absolutely nothing. He's fleeing for his life. He's got nothing. And no prospects. Eliezer's imagining he's going to find the bride and go back to his master uh, successful. And that is what happens. Yaakov comes uh, with absolutely zero prospects. And he is on the run and uh, is coming to Haran with no expectation of anything. They both arrive. Uh, They're going to both, at some point, we're not there yet with Yaakov because he's still on the way. They're both going to arrive at a well. What is the well? Symbol of life, water, water, fertility, right? And it's always where you have the betrothal scene. It's always where the hero meets the young woman. And that's going to happen to Jacob as well. As well. (laughs) And she's always beautiful, right? Uh, She's always beautiful or she wouldn't be a matriarch. And so he, uh, he's going to come to the well, and there he's going to meet Rachel. All right. But we're not there yet. But, but these are parallel. They're, they're absolutely parallel journeys, completely opposite in what the circumstances are. But there's going to be a betrothal scene you know, in both of them where there's a woman at the well, and that turns into a marriage. Uh, for Eliezer, it's hugely successful. Rivka is the next Avraham, as we talked about a little bit, um, not Isaac. 
many people in our tradition point to Rivka as the one who really takes on the qualities of Avraham. Right? She left her home. She didn't look back. They consulted her. Do you want to go with this guy? She says, sure. <laughs> right? She's up for the adventure. She goes. She doesn't look back. And she has a successful marriage early with Isaac. And um, so she she's really the one who, who um, follows in the ways of Avraham. Uh, so that's a very successful uh, meeting at the well. So it was for Jacob, except he's going to get bamboozled out of that being a happy marriage. Right? So Yaakov, who's on the run for tricking his brother out of his blessing by dressing up as him for his father who can't see, right? He disguises himself. Using Isaac's blindness, he disguises himself as Esau to steal that blessing. Um, and what's going to happen to Yaakov, we know in this Parsha right now, is that he's, if we get there, I'm not sure we will, um, is he's going to fall in love with Rachel, and Leah will be placed in a veil that prevents Yaakov from seeing her identity, and he, it wrecks his happy marriage. They are, the family's locked in all kinds of tension and horribleness and jealousy and hurt for the rest of Rachel's life, which is not nearly long enough. You know, she dies in childbirth having Benjamin. All right. So very much, they're meant to parallel each other. They're meant very much to be, right, similar stories, but the, but we get the, you know, the zets that Yaakov has created, you know, in his world, um, uh, which changes very much the story from what it was with Eliezer and Rivka. So Yaakov left Beersheba and set out for Haran. He, came, he comes upon a certain place. So Vayivga Bamakom. He comes upon a place. It's an interesting word here used for uh, ha- coming upon a place. And it's more um, sudden than just happening upon. Right? There's nothing that says happening upon in that Hebrew word. Um, so Pigua in Israel is a terrorist attack, is a bomb, something that injures, right? So it's almost like Yaakov smashed into this place. Uh, for the rabbis, uh, it's a miraculous thing. Night is coming, so Yaakov has to sleep, but God wants that Yaakov should be sleeping at this holy place of Bethel, and so God causes a miracle to happen. This is to your Midrash point, Linda. And the earth actually contracts so that Yaakov can get there before nightfall. And But when you contract the earth like that, right, it kind of lifts it up and so he actually smacks into Bethel. Just saying. So, but but it's kind of this abrupt, he, he, he's, all, he's in this place and it's called Makom. And whenever we get makom, right, we have echoes of something special here, something possibly of the divine uh, that's going to happen. It is one of our names for God, hamakom, the place. Can this parallel the story of the burning bush? Um, I don't know if makom is used. 100%, it's, it's going to be a place of discovery. For Yaakov, it's going to be internal. Right, not some not some external sign, but, but yeah, but but like Moshe at the bush, it's a moment of right an encounter with the divine. Well, like the bush and Sinai, it's kind of in the middle of nowhere, an undetermined place that could be anywhere. Correct. But here we're going to get a very specific place, mm-hmm. right? So that's different I mean, it's from there, Moshe. But I mean, it, it's not like it's like 
a place somewhere. Right. And for Yaakov right now, it, yeah. there's nothing to m- make it special. Mm-hmm. He just happens upon this place because it's getting dark. It's very clear that he stops here because it's getting dark. Night was approaching and he needs to stop. You don't travel. Mm-hmm. It's stupid to travel at night, right, in the ancient world or even, I guess even today. Um, you know, like you're vulnerable and you can't see very well and you know, people can be hiding in the trees. Like, you, you know, you don't travel at night. You hunker down, you make a fire and you seek protection. All right, so he stops there for the night. <clears throat> Taking one of the stones of that place he put it under his head and lay down in that place. There's a lot of discussion uh, in the scholarly literature about why a rock under your head, right? Like if you're going to pick something, gen- there's no pillows, but generally wouldn't you take your saddlebag or your cloak or, I don't know, some leaves? I, I don't know, but like a rock? Really? Good. Yeah. It's still it's kind of hard. hard. The Egyptians used they had these they had rests. Yeah. yeah. They were almost rock So and certainly in cultures where women had these elaborate hairdos, right? That you know they had to sleep on something that just held their neck. Um, so so this is the argument. Is it that this was some kind of normative practice? You know that he would have you know used it as a resting stone. Or he was between a rock and a hard (laughs) (laughs) Well, there are just some things they cannot prepare you for in a medical school, I'm just saying. He was between a rock and a hard place, yes. Yes. Uh, The commentary here says uh, he exhibits his youthful adaptability by using a stone for a pillow. All right. So he was so young and vigorous that it doesn't matter that the stone was hard. Uh, Some people want to say you don't nobody sleeps on a rock Mm -hmm. that you just don't like, you know, you generally you have your saddlebag, you have your blanket, you have something that you, you know, he's he's doing it to incubate a dream that he's freaking out about this journey. He he doesn't know what's waiting for him in Haran. He doesn't know what his future is. He's on the run. His brother, you know, could be coming after him and pursuing him for all he knows. And so he incubates, he's incubating a vision. And one of the arguments for that is that he has a vision, right? So, um, but be that as it may, he puts a rock under his head uh, and he, uh, and there's a midrash. You have to go look it up, Linda, about he puts 12 stones there all around his head, and then they move around and do all kinds of crazy things. It's also um, interesting. He takes a stone from Bamakom. From it's that the same place. Word from, if, mm-hmm. if, if you're saying that Makom is a word for God, then that puts another thing on the stone. Right? So he takes from one of the stones of God, perhaps. And he has a dream. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Right, that is always meaningful, right, in in the ancient world and in our text. If we get a dream, there's a reason we're getting a dream. It's still true. And for many, it is still true that that dreams are deeply meaningful. I have never figured it out, but um, and he dreams, and lo, right. I love that English word, um, which I tend to translate with a Y instead of an L, just to bring it up to date. And yo. That's what Hine means. Behold. You know, like, yo, Sulam Mutsav Artsa, a ladder was, remember we talked about this word, Nitzavim, Nitzav, be, uh, you know, Amateba, we talked about it firmly rooted, planted, so a, a ladder was, boom, 
there planted Artsa on the ground, right towards the ground. The Rosho, but its top, its head, Magia HaShemaima, reached the sky, reached Shemaim, right? When you put an a, a, H, when you put a hey at the end of some of these words like Eretz, here it says Artsa, it's directional. So Eretz is land, earth, ground. When you put a hey at the end of that, Artsa, it means towards the ground. And the the top, Magia Shamaima, with a hey. The the top reached towards the heaven, right? The Hine, and lo, Malchei Elohim, Olim Vyordimbo. So Malachei Elohim, angels, messengers of God, Olim, are going up and coming down it. So why wasn't the ladder from the sky, from heaven down to earth? And why did the angels start at the earth and go up when theoretically angels would be in heaven? I'm sure the rabbi said so. <laughs> so clearly yes. Bert is familiar with this story because uh, one of the questions the rabbi asked, the rabbis ask is interesting that the direction is from here, there, from the earth uh, to the heavens, and that the, the malachim seem to be here. They olim, they olim first. They go up first and then come down. So it uh, seems to suggest, say the rabbis, that the malachim are here among us. They're, these are malachim who are always going about the business of, doing don't know, good. doing good, says the always optimistic Sarah. Um, they're doing good. Some say they are busy watching what's going on and reporting back. So they are always here taking notes and reporting. Um Others suggest that they are always coming and going because they have a job to do. Malachim are what? What is it in Hebrew? What does it mean? Messengers. Messengers. So they're delivering their messages. Right? They, they're like it's the postal service, right? The divine postal service. That they, they are UPSing their divine messages to everybody, and then they go back to you know get a new assignment. All right. So in any case, it seems there's a lot of busyness with this sulam with this ladder. Behine and lo, yo, yud hey vav hey. God, God's self, nitzav alav. Here's that word nitzav, right? Standing, but in that way that we talked about, like a, a monument, a pillar stands, right? God nitzav alav. Rita, what does alav mean? On the ladder, presumably, on it. Or on the ground. It's on something. <laughs> it's on it or on him. Him. Yeah. We don't know. So your English is already an interpretation. Mm-hmm. Your English, ignore it. Ignore your English translations. What does your translation say? And the Lord was standing beside him. <laughs> that is not what the Hebrew says. Adonai was standing on it or on him. So either God is standing on Yaakov or in him or in him or God is standing maybe alav meaning on it on the ladder or on the earth on the makom mm-hmm. or like so it is very clearly left in the Hebrew ambiguous on purpose. Any rendering of the English is a reduction 
of the Hebrew to linear logical. You know, we have to have a picture in our heads, and English is very precise. And so the English is going to give us a very precise image. That is not the point of the Hebrew. The reason the Hebrew needs to stay ambiguous is because this is a vision. Dreams, visions are not linear, right? They leak into each other. Something morphs into something else. And it re- reminds you of this, but it's not really that. And you're standing in Iowa, but you're not anymore. Now you're in the shower. Now, right? It, it doesn't make any sense. Is modern spoken Hebrew equally ambiguous in translation? Most languages are ambiguous. In this case, yes. This is still how you would say it in Hebrew today. And it would still be ambiguous. That, you know, that I'm putting this Allah on it. On it, the table. Right? If I don't say the table, if I just say on it, we, we don't know. If the people listening at home, I put it on it, what it? Y'all in the room may see it, but they don't know if they're talking about if we're talking about the table, my book, my chair. Right? So um, so it's equally ambiguous, yes, in modern Hebrew. Alright, so God is standing somewhere in this business. That that's what we know from the Hebrew. Vayomer. And he said, who said? So we're going to presume it's God, because that's who just got talked about. Ani Adonai Elohei Avicha. I am Yudhei Vafei. Ani Yudhei Vafei. I am Yudhei Vafei. The God of Abraham Avicha. Abraham, your ancestor. The Elohei Yitzchak. And the God of Yitzchak. Ha'aretz asher atashocheva lea lecha etnena ulizar acha. The land that you are lying on her, I will give to you and your offspring. And your offspring will be like the dust of the earth. What does it mean? Towards the ocean. So, and you will bust out. Yama towards the ocean, Vekedma, Vetsafona, Venegma, Venegba. So uh, towards the uh, sea, to the west, to the east, to the north, and towards the Negev. Negba. Put an H at the end of Negev, towards the Negev, and south. Everywhere. Everywhere. Exactly right. Venivrechuvecha, kol mishpechota adama. And all of the families of the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Very similar to the promise made to Abraham, right? That we studied when we talked about what does it mean that you shall be a blessing and all the people of the world will bless themselves through, will be blessed through you, right? So we are getting exactly the same promise here to Yitzchak. And behold, I am with you. And I will guard you, protect you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you. I will not abandon you. Until I have done what I have promised you. So Yaakov is getting assurance that he will be guarded, protected, he will be brought back here, and he and his offspring will inherit this land. Well, this is saying that they'll leave. They'll leave. What do you mean? Well, if, if, he, if God will bring them back. Him back. Him. Well, it's assuming he was going to go some other 
He's got to go to Haran. Oh, he, he, he has a job to, he has to go to Haran. That's not the Jewish people, that's just him. Correct. So, but, but God is saying, you're going to go to Haran, but you're, I promise you're going to, I will make sure you are protected and you're brought back here. And you're, and you're going to have many, many offspring, meaning don't worry. It's, it's going to be okay. Lois? I'm just agreeing. So that you is singular. So the, this promise, yes, is to, is to Yaakov. But of course, the promise is you won't be singular. Right? You'll be many, 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 many fold. So this is a deep comfort to Yaakov. I find it also deeply ironic because he is going to be incredibly fertile with a lot of contention as a result. It is not happy in that household where there are 13 children. Right? And so, yes, he has many, many, many offspring, but his favorite one, what happens? He thinks he gets killed. He thinks he's dead. For most of Yaakov's life, he thinks Yosef has been killed. And then when he finds out he's alive, he finds out he's alive, and the brothers stole him and sold him from their own father. This is what he finds out about his sons that they did to him. I mean, it's not so as comforting as this dream is. I always read it knowing what's coming and that the facts are true, right? Yes, everything God says is technically true. But it's in a way misleading about how difficult it's going to be for Yaakov. That's why it's his dream. I mean, it's, it's his own dream that he needs comforting in this very anxious time that everything will be okay. It mm-hmm. reminds me of you know being 13 and wanting to know that you know what's how's everything going to turn out and just you know, I wish somebody could tell me everything's going to be okay in my life. What's my life going to be like? And that's this. Himself or God telling him it's all going to be okay. And so, had the revelation come to you at 13 that you felt pretty certain was from the divine that you're going to marry someone, you're going to have a lovely home, you're going to live in a beautiful town, you're going to have two healthy, amazing sons, right? Would you have imagined that it meant you were going to have to put up with Christopher? (laughs) (laughs) It would give me a a sense of ease to go that there'll be somebody. No, no, I mean, I'm serious that there would be somebody. I'm going to get married. I'm going to, all those things that we think we want. That's going to happen. What we can't know at this point is how hard that's going to be. Is what that's going to actually mean. We think what we want is to be assured that we're going to get all these things, which I think is true. We do want that assurance. What we don't get is that even getting all of that is careful what you ask for, for ye may surely get it. I want a, you know, good rabbi job. Yeah. So, like, um, it's, it's, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. And we thank God. But you don't know what that, right, the, the comfort is because that's what I want. We, what we don't understand, what Yaakov can't understand at this point is, it's never going to be, it's never going to be what we think. And it's always harder and more complicated, right, than we know. But it's like, he's carrying the curse of what he did. And, and, and that's what's played out. Mm-hmm. I mean, God gives him the confidence to go to the well and take a wife, or wives, as it turns out. But he's punished. Do we know how old he is at this point? I'm sure the rabbis tell us somewhere, but because they cal- they calculate. I mean, is he like a but young I, man, or is he, is he 50 or like 20? Or I don't know. I, don't, I always think of him like as in his 40s. That's just the okay. story. Um, but, but remember, remember in Torah times um, that, that they live 
a lot longer. Right? Sarah gives birth at 90. I mean, so the, the numbers... The numbers don't really, for me, tend to mean very much or add up very much. Um, he's not a teenager. He's not a teenager, but he's um, but he's not married yet. Right. You know, he's so he's, he's on the verge of his life. I mean, I think what it tells us is not just for him. It's not like he's cursed or he's got problems. <laughs> life is not uh, yeah, life's not easy. You can have everything that you hope for, and you know, look closer in the details. It's, there's I do think there's an element, however, in this story because it's it's so it's crafted so carefully. I, there's a part of me that really does think there's a message here of what we reap, what we sow, and that he would not be on the run and go into Haran and wind up in Laban's house to be tricked had he not tricked his brother. And yes, everything everything we do in our lives leads to another thing. I get that, but I really do think for Torah, it's like yeah. you bamboozled your father and brother and what goes around, my friend, comes right around. And I always think of him as being in his 20s because it's that angst that mm-hmm. most of us feel in our 20s while we're looking for the right person and mm-hmm. the right... So whatever his age, that's definitely the stage in his life that he's at. Is he's individuating what does it mean to leave your parents house he's been defined by his mother his mother put him up to tricking his brother out of the blood so what does it mean to pull out of that family system and not be defined anymore by how your parents see you and what does it mean to individuate it's painful right it's really painful to pull away and say i won't be defined by you it's risky Um, and by the way he never sees rivka alive again that whole business cost him his mother and cost her her son um, and so he, you know, so he, he's at that age, that, that angst, and, and I don't know what's coming, and he has no assurance of a, line, a lineage. I don't even know that that's on his mind. We know it was on Avraham's mind, but we don't know that Yaakov even cares right now about descendants. He's not been someone who understood himself as part of a covenant necessarily. Maybe his father, Yitzhak, tells him all about him and his grandfather having this great vision for a covenant, blah, 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 blah. Does he buy it? I don't know. Did he read himself into that? We don't know. Here, clearly, he gets an understanding that he's being addressed by the author of that covenant, that he is absolutely in line um, for that promise. Okay. Kurt Douglas points out in that article that the Torah tells the greatest stories ever written because of the conflicts and the family and the unanswered questions. They're the greatest stories written. There you go. I won't argue with you. Do we know if he had any regret for his actions? Torah rarely speaks of regret. The only time we get regret mentioned in the Torah that I can recall is God regretting having created human beings. And we saw where that went. Right? I always say divine regret, right? That. Didn't he regret the flood? No. No. God promises it won't happen again, so we can assume God regretted it. Um, do we? Torah doesn't spend a lot of time talking about the inner lives of people. That's our contemporary desire to understand psychologically, emotionally, what's happening. That's not the interest of Torah. So when we see emotion in Torah, it, it should be like exclamation point, bold, underlined, italicized, right? Because with neon ink, right? Because it's a huge departure from what Torah is usually concerned about. Like what we're seeing here with jealousy. And right. And, and, and we have to read some jealousy in. We, we do that naturally as modern readers. But we have to watch for, does the word jealous appear? No. That's what we have to watch for. 
not, not that we can't read in. We can assume, of course, Leah's jealous because there's this rivalry. But, but we have to be careful not to put it on the text, right? Just, just to say really clear what's happening in the text. All right, so what's happening in our text now? Vayikatz Yaakov Mishnato. And Yaakov, like, boom, like, wakes up. Like, this is not a gentle, oh, wow, the birds are singing. The sun is up. It must be morning, right? This is, he like, you have those dreams where you're like, <gasps> Yeah. Right, and you startle awake. So this is the sense of Vaikats. He wakes up suddenly um, from his sleep and says <clears throat> what we have on the board. Surely, it's a terrible translation. What would you say instead of surely? Most definitely. Most definitely. Most positive. Probably. Wow. Verily. Verily. Yo, yo. Double yo. Double yo. True and certain it is. True and certain it is, right? So, achen. Wow. For sure. For sure. Yesh. Yesh. There is. Yesh. It's existence, yesh, having. It's very hard to explain the Hebrew here to an English speaker because we don't have it in English. You, know, you could say, there is a marker case. Uh, uh, there is an eraser case on the table. There is. So that's that's the yesh. There is a marker case on the table. So the yesh of that. But in Hebrew and in Kabbalistic tradition, yesh is about very existence. Yesh as opposed to me'ayin, nothing. Isness as opposed to nothingness, and they are intention all the time. Um, so for the Kabbalists, so I want you to start thinking about the verses up there for a reason. We're spending the rest of the morning on that verse. So Achain, wow, yesh, there is yud hey vav hey ba makom There is yud hey vav hey. Here. In in this makom, in this place, va'anochi. What is that vav doing? It's always a vav is either conjunctive or disjunctive. So how do you want to translate it? And or but. <laughs> Which one? And or but? However. But. However. Say two over there. Any votes for and? Pam and Laura and Linda are saying and. All right. So it's either but or and. Anochi. I, lo yadati, I didn't know. All right. Sounds pretty, right, pretty straightforward. Vayirat, so he, he, he falls immediately into awe, with, you know, with that awe that's got the tinge of fear, and says, ma right, how awesome. He falls into a state of awe and says, how awesome is this place. It's a real epiphany. It's a real epiphany. How filled with awe is this place? Right? And he puts a mateva, right? Because he understands that this is the gateway to heaven. The veil is thinner in this place. It is the meeting place between heaven and earth. It is a holy place. He puts up a, a mateva, a pillar. He anoints it with oil and calls the place Beit El, the house of God, the house of El. All right. And, he, and, and right, that replaces the, the name of the city that had been Luz. It is now called Beitel. This is how Beitel got its name. This is how the elephant got its trunk. Right? So this is one of those stories. 
I always thought he was like, uh, I pictured this as being in the middle of nowhere, yeah. and then here he says he's in a city, unless he was outside the city. Probably outside the city. The other piece is Bethel doesn't really ring the same as Beth El. Because? Well, Bethel sounds like a label. Yeah, rather than definitive. Rather than house of God. Right. right. Bethel or whatever. Yeah. All right, so there's a wonderful book written by the most amazing and wonderful Rabbi Larry Kushner, Rabbi Lawrence Kushner. If you've never read his work, you're missing something. You're missing out on a real treat. Um, the book is called God Was in This Place and I, I Did Not Know. And it is seven or eight chapters, each chapter devoted to a philosopher in our tradition interpreting this verse as demonstrating their philosophy. That this verse and the way they parse it is an example of their philosophy. So we're going to walk through a little bit of that um, quickly. Um, he says the and people. And you think we're not going to argue with Kushner's translation? No. Um, <laughs> um, and you're in that camp, right? <laughs> right. So, Achen, Yesh, Yerevafe, Bamakom, Hazev, Anochi, Lo, Yadati, says Rashi. Rashi in Provence, right, around the year 1100, 1000, whatever. Um, he's in Provence, very much a part of Ashkenaz, very much a part of uh, Eastern uh, Jewry, Eastern European Jewry. Uh, at Provence, where, where is this amazing intellectual, uh, exciting center at Rashi's time? Uh, and so Rashi is uh, often translates biblical Hebrew that we don't understand anymore because we've lost what they mean. He translates it into medieval French. It's like now it's clear, <laughs> right? So, but a lot of words got saved for us because Rashi translated them into medieval French, and we can look at the medieval French and have an idea of what what at least in Rashi circles, that word was thought to mean. And he taught his daughters. And he taught his daughters. There's a book, Rashi's Daughters. Three. Three daughters. No, it's three. It's a trilogy. Trilogy. Okay, three books, three daughters. I don't know. All right, so for Rashi, how is Rashi going to interpret this this verse? Rashi's going to translate this to be about a certain kind of waking up. So for Rashi, he says, Rashi says, the burning bush, Rashi, Rashi as translated by Larry Kushner, Rabbi Kushner says, um, the burning bush was not a miracle. It was a test. God wanted to find out whether or not Moses could pay attention to something for more than a few minutes. <laughs> when Moses did, God spoke. The trick is to pay attention to what is going on around you long enough to behold the miracle without falling asleep. There is another world right here within this one whenever we pay attention. How does Rashi translate this verse? Behold, yo, wow, there is Yudhe in this place. And, and I didn't know. Because had I known, I would not have gone to sleep. I went to sleep 
because I did not perceive lo yadati. I didn't know that God was right here. Had I known that, I would have chosen obviously to to stay with that and to stay awake and to engage with that. And Rashi's saying, God is bamakom hazeh. God is in this very place, this very experience, this very moment. But anochi lo yadati. We don't. Each of us, right, don't know that. And so we go to sleep. Or we don't know it because we're asleep. Right? And then it takes it takes cultivating an awareness of where is in this place. Because this is a statement that it always is. And I'm using it of God in this case, right? Because it's just a better translation. Um, again, this is Rabbi Kushner on Rashi on this verse or on Rashi's philosophy related to this verse, Judaism sees only one world, which is material and spiritual at the same time. The material world is always potentially spiritual. For Judaism, all things, including and especially such apparently non-spiritual and grossly material things as garbage, sweat, dirt, and bushes, are not impediments to, but dimensions of spirituality. To paraphrase the psalmist, the whole world is full of God. The business of religion is to keep that awesome truth ever before us so that we are looking for it. So we are looking to the bush. What's the miracle here in this bush being on fire? This is the deepness in the mindfulness movement. Mm-hmm. This is the foundation. I think, I think mindfulness is part of every single person in this book that he quotes that's dealing with this text. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely. I think this is intention, um, being mindful. Right? It's just different different gradations and different ways of getting at it. But 100%, that's what this verse is for all of the great masters of our tradition. It's a teaching about mindfulness. So the Kutzker Rebbe. So the Rebbe of Kutsk. Um, Menachem Mendel of Kutsk. Right? So part of the early... Hasidic movement, right? Uh, and looking in the Hasidic movement to oppose the super rational world of Talmudic discourse, right? The, that whole, you know, pill pool of law and details about law and, and linear thinking, right? Hasidism comes to, to say you've lost the whole soul of this business when you start tearing apart this and this one's got to best that one with a logical argument about but, 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 who cares you've lost the soul of Judaism when that's when you're so up in your head and so Hasidism is really about bringing joy and and an animated you know Judaism to the people um, so the first idol says Menachem Mendel of Kutsk and the one that makes us idolaters is not a statue meaning something we make, that's how we tend to think of an idol, but the ego. I'm not referring to that imaginary dimension of the psyche postulated by Freud, this is all Rabbi Kushner, also called ego, but rather to a way of acting that says, I judge us both and I am more important than you. The verse here literally reads, surely God was in this place and I, I did not know. The sense is, and me, I didn't know. But the I, the anochi, seems to be redundant. Right? Why do you have to say, and I, anochi, you could just say loyadati. This, this yud, 
Lo yadati means I didn't know. It's right there in the verb, right? Hebrew, the, the, the body, like other Romance languages, the body, who you're talking about, is in the verb itself. How you conjugate the verb is he, she, I, it, past, present, or future. So this says I, past tense, no, didn't. Lo, here's the lo, I didn't, right? This is to know, past tense, I. That's all you need. Hebrew is not redundant in the Torah, God forbid. So what is this doing here? Why do you need Anochi? It's taking more responsibility. So it's taking more responsibility. For the Kutzker Rebbe, it's saying this is ego. When ego's involved, Anochi doesn't know that God is present. As in, how could I not have known? Because if I'm so preoccupied with me and my needs and my things and what I'm not getting, what I'm not doing, and what I should have gotten, and it should have been, when I'm caught up in Anochi, in me, lo yadati, then I can't know that God's in this place. There's no room for knowing. There's there's no room for knowing. But not that it was. It's his fear that drives out all knowing. His fear of what's coming after him or what is going to be in front of him does not allow him to be in concert with what's around him. So, yes, the Kutzker's taking it further to say, yes, part of it is our fear. Part of it is just our preoccupation with me. And when we're stuck in me, as we all are most of the time, this is what mindfulness practices is about. Monkey mind, the chatter going on, I taught this to a group of um, B'nai Mitzvah, my seventh graders one time, and I, I got a phone call from a parent who was said that the child was very upset that I called them all monkeys. <laughs> you have to be careful what age you teach certain things. So, so monkey mind, right, is going on in every single one of our heads. Monkey mind, is that's just what happens. That's what the brain is supposed to do. It's supposed to think. It's supposed to worry. It's supposed to plan. It's supposed to run over that situation. How would I have done it differently so that next time I do it differently? Right? That's the brain's job. Mindfulness is about saying there's nothing wrong with that. But if that's all there ever is, you you cannot possibly apprehend yod he or know yod he in any kind of because you know the word in Hebrew this knowing is like also in the biblical sense right right so it's it's an intimate knowledge you can't have that if you're all caught up in anochi ego me and it's not just a bad ego it's just our regular, everyday preoccupation with our own thoughts, our own worries, our own concerns. And so Anochi has to disappear for us to apprehend Yodhei Vavhei. What did Kushner say again about what, how he defines ego? Uh, something about... I judge you and me, and I judge me to be superior. <laughs> um, right? Okay. Um, I judge us both. I judge us both, and I am more important than you, uh, is how he said it. Um, so, um, this, to, to me, listening to you, it's yep. like if if you fill everything with yourself, there's no place for God, right, or anything. And I can even relate that to Shabbat, right? If you fill all seven days just with your own work and your own preoccupations. There's no place for the spiritual. There's no place for that to be there. And it's one of the great, fantastic things about Shabbat. And, and you, yeah, you, you, it's someone said it's the space between the notes that makes the music. Or, right. Or, or in the Torah, it's the space between the words or the letters. Somebody said. That. 
There you go. The Ludmir, the teacher from Ludmir, Chana Rachel. Chana Rachel, the only child of Monish Verbermacher of Ludmir, a town in Ukraine. Uh, her mother died when she was very young. Apparently, there's no other children. Apparently, he did not remarry. Um, and apparently, he, uh, the Ludmir, the Ludmir uh, Rebbe, taught her everything he knew. And she herself became a Rebbe. And, uh, right. Uh, he doesn't give me a date, but or an early, early 18th, 18th century. So it's it's you know in the Hasidic yeah. period, um, her popularity as a tzaddiket, a female tzaddik or rebbe, um, effectively ended soon after her 40th year when she was persuaded to marry. She returns to it uh, much later in life, uh, but she would teach from behind a door. Uh, and the door would be opened so her students, her followers could hear her. But, of course, they couldn't, God forbid, look at her, right, while she was teaching because that would be sexually, you know, distracting for them. Um, it would, could lead to dancing. Exactly right. <laughs> exactly right. Um, and so for her, the, her philosophy is about how do we deal with evil, right? So this is somebody who's witnessed, you know, pogroms, who knows, you know, an incredible tricky life, right? Um, not that the others didn't. It's just that you know, this is her, her focus. A lot of her focus is on evil and good. And what does that mean? Either you have evil and good, she says, in one world, or or what you're left with. If you don't have that, the, the evil and good are all you know intertwined in this world, then what you're left with is God and Satan. Because there's, there's only two ways to do it. It's here together, or there's good, and then there's an opposing force that's evil, and it's about which which system are you going to pick? Neither one is easy. The existence of evil is not easy to deal with, but you but but it exists. So we have to deal with it. So here's so that's the question. And so for her, her focus on this verse, achain, and none of these are are exclusive of each other. They're not mutually exclusive, right? But it's the it's, I just wanted to get you to feel the the breadth and depth of our tradition and how it treats even just one verse of Torah in terms of how it's explicated and how much it means uh, in different uh, systems and for different teachers. So, becomes the focus for her. So, wow, there is yud in this place. But I, I didn't know it. What place is she talking about? Wherever, here. But, but what is she lifting up about Hazel? In places of evil. Oh. That there is, there is even Yud Hey Vav Hey Bamakom Hazel. Va'anochi lo yadati. But I didn't apprehend it because that's her concern. Dealing with the existence of evil, and um, and we know that from her writing, and uh, not her writing, what her students said she taught. Um, so she says, if you don't have an awareness that God is even in those situations that we would identify as evil, then there must be some other non-God power. This is all Kushner talking about her teaching um, that makes it real and gives it vitality, and with whom God is in eternal conflict. That's very important with the show up. in such a universe where the source of evil is other than God 
sooner or later, one way or another, you wind up with some kind of demonic force, a sitra achra in Kabbalah, in the other side. Other side, (laughs) other side, devil or Satan, right? In the second world, God is somehow part of the evil. So one world is that you've got God and then something opposing God because God can't be in anything evil, right? In the second world that she describes, God is somehow part of the evil, present even in its depths. This is the meaning of our assertion that God is one. Oneness at the core of all being in whom everything, yes, even evil, ultimately converges. The source of all reality. If God is the source of all being and human evil is real, then God therefore must be in it also. The evil does not derive its being from some extra divine source. This is certainly what Job learns when God speaks to him from out of the whirlwind. God does not cause, tolerate, or even forbear the evil, but God, as with everything else in creation, is in it. God plays all notes. God plays all notes, including ones that when you play them together are discordant to the point of it being horrible. But if you accept that and that vision of that, it really it discounts the, the personification of evil as Satan. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Which is not a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't, you know, it, it takes them off the stage. Yes. That's what she argues. Yeah. She says, unless you're ready to say that God is even in Makom Hazeh, even in this place. Pick, pick what that is. There's not, unfortunately, a dearth of things to choose from. Um, then what you're saying is, I deny that there is another force that opposes God that is the originator of evil. And that's the world she wants to live in. That's how she's making meaning and reads it into our tradition, that that's what it means, Adonai Echad. God is one. It's not divisible into this is God and that isn't. So is the idea of Satan ever brought up in the Torah? Um, No, it's not Torah. It is after Torah that we get the character of Satan. The Christian. No, No. the Jews. Satan, but Satan starts not as Satan as we know Satan. Satan begins in angelology, in early Jewish angelology, as the prosecutorial angel. If you're in a legal system, remember the rabbis are in a legal system. That is their Judaism. They don't have sacrifice. They have a legal system. So for them, the legal system is is the system. Halacha. The path is a legal system. So for them, within a legal system, you have the defense and you have the prosecution. And Satan is the malach charged with the job by God of being the prosecutor in the case. And, and it's usually Moshe, Avraham, or the people Israel who are the defendant. So then that becomes and morphs later into the, uh, you know, kind of a evil force. It's a totally different concept from the Christian concept, certainly. Certainly, yes. Because Satan is under God's authority. And maybe it is in Christianity, too. I don't know enough about Satan and Christian, you know, um, theology in that system to know. But but Satan is under God's authority. Satan is free to act, 
right? And God gets trapped sometimes, right, in the Midrash by having to defend Israel. For instance, the binding of Isaac, right? In the Midrash, Satan is going, nah, 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 nah. see the big party God that Abraham threw for Isaac's weaning? You know, Abraham loves Isaac way more than Abraham loves you. And so God is now trapped by the prosecutor who has brought a charge against Abraham. And so God has to set up the case. And so God says to Abraham, take your son, the only one you love, and offer him to me on a mountain to prove to Satan that Abraham loves God, in fact, more than I. So this is how Satan functions in rabbinic literature. But wasn't there also a big challenge from Zoroastrianism at some point, which says that there are two gods, two forces, and evil, and particularly, I guess, in, in, in Iran and in that part of the world, and there was a huge Jewish reaction against that. Early, early. Yeah, early. And there's even things in the liturgy that, you know, the morning blessing that says God uh, creates light and fashions darkness. So the Siddur, Mm -hmm. the the literature of the Siddur is very much an answer to Zoroastrianism. This is way later, right? So this is not... This is not dealing with Zoroastrianism, but it is dealing with the question of, mm. of evil, because that, that question, unfortunately, doesn't go away. Um, Would you kindly read the of the woman that you're quoting? Yes, even though I will butcher it. Mm-hmm. Hannah Rachel of Ludomir. But I, and I can write it down for you. And she's called the Ludomirer Moid. 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 Moid? Maid? Is that maid in Yiddish? No, Moid. Sort of a gross M- girl. M O I D. A gross girl? A small girl. You know, is a little girl. A Moid is a grown up. Uh, the Ludemirer Moid. Spinster? Is what she was called. A Moid is, would be a girl who is very. Um, Oppositional and strong. Oppositional and strong. Okay, well, that's who she is, apparently. The the Ludemirer Moid. And it's capitalized, so I'm assuming that's what they called her. Um, Yes? Uh, Show a contest between uh, God and Satan? Not that I recall. Job... Job is sent to do a job he doesn't want to do. The conflict is between God and Job. Job doesn't want to do what God wants Job to do. Okay. Amy, is there no need to reconcile the presence of God and evil at the same time in the same place? So, so, so she says, think of it this way, explained the maid of Ludimir. If the world is covered by an ocean... The ocean naturally would be implicated in everything that happened. But we would not blame the ocean for its currents, its waves, or its storms. The ocean simply is. In much the same way, God's ubiquity does not mean that God is therefore in the business of causing, intending, or even tolerating human misery. Correcting those things is the business of human beings. That is why God made human beings in so the first place. Free will issue. Yes. It's not God's fault. That there are some things that are we understand them as bad, like cancer, because they hurt us. But there's nothing wrong or evil in cells that want to reproduce. Not want. I'm wanting. I'm anthropomorphizing, obviously. But but they do. They just reproduce and replicate. There's nothing wrong with that. It, when it affects us, we go, "Wow, that's terrible. How could God allow cancer?" Right, So that's one level. The other level is that there are some things that just exist. They become evil because they hurt 
human beings or the or other creatures, and it's our job to mitigate that as much as possible. What role does God play, if at all? Is there a role? So God's role is to is for us to draw on God and godliness in such a way as to behave in the world, so as to be repairers and tenders to the people who hurt, and to find cures and to. Right, rebuild houses and build houses that can withstand the earthquake and clean up after the tsunami. And, and uh, there's negotiations with God. There for whom? Well, on uh, Sodom, Abraham, Abraham uh, negotiates. You know, not to destroy. Him. And he was another fellow too. Again, negotiating with God. I, I, God was one that was sadistic and evil. And somebody negotiated to save it. Some person, human, negotiated to save it a couple of times. Moses was the other person. Moses. All right, we're going to close with one more, uh, and and then some a special treat for you, and then we're going to say our closing prayers. Um, the Magid of Mezrich, Dove Bear, the Magid of Mezrich, Poland, 1772. Right, so again, the Hasidic, very beginnings of um, the Hasidism that we know, um, says this verse is teaching what we, what we, all spiritual seekers and finders know, and it's not easy. Achen, and it's similar to one we said before. Wow, yesh yurevavei b'makom hazeh in this place. But I, and again, this is going to be the focus for um, the Magid of Mezrich, Anochi lo yadati. That Anochi doesn't know, but that what, what this verse is teaching is Anochi has to go away in order to apprehend God. You, you have to remove yourself. The self must disappear. So in one, in Rashi, it's a focus on the self that, you know, that, that pulls us out of the knowledge of God's presence. For the Magid and Mezrich, it goes further. You have to disappear in order to apprehend the, the divine that is in this place. The boundaries between you and other, capital O, have to dissolve. Right? This is, you know, that, that mystical union Right kind of um, idea. You must cease to be aware of yourself. You must. It's hard to. I don't know how to talk about it, but I kind of get it. Um, Anochi, the I that knows stuff, is not the one who knows this stuff. Anochi lo yadati. As long as you're aware that you're thinking about is God in this place, you already have. Lost. You've lost it. You're already in the way. There, there can't be an, an anochi. You have to be in that state where you don't know there's a you. Completely give yourself over to it. That you're not even aware you're giving yourself over. That's gone. It's all, I am gone. <laughs> I, I'm just there. I'm present and completely, right? Really a part so of. This is really fullness. It's complete fullness. At the same time. So full that there's no me that's full. Right. There, there's no, the drop that's in the ocean. Is there, is there a distinguishing oh, boundary between the drop and the ocean? No. no. And that's what he's saying. Anochi is the drop. There, the drop goes away. It returns to ocean. And that's the state we are in when we are knowing the divine. This reminds me so much of the Yodzai prayer. Where the, we're not talking about death and us and life. We're talking about the glory of God. 
in which all of it exists and unfolds and has its being. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. The moment you start hearing what you yourself are saying, you have to stop taught the Magi of Mesrits because you've just gotten in the way. Right now, as soon as you are aware that you're saying something, you've already, you're, you're, it's already about Anochi. You've already put the wall up. Um, and so the, the, so Rabbi Kushner's way of getting at this, it says, you ever talk to yourself? I don't mean you're, when you're alone in the car. I mean, did you ever ask yourself a question to find out if you knew the answer? <laughs> like, who am I? Or what is the meaning of my life? Did you ever get an answer? And the meaning of this verse is, what would you do if the answer were, who's asking? Right? Like, I'm asking, what is my life about? What's the meaning of my life? Who am I? What if the answer is, who's asking? Right? That comes outside of, who am I? Who's asking? Right? So that's for him, like, a way at, um, at getting at some of this. Um, and I will close with, um, they who cleave, so this is the, uh, Another Rebbe who studied the Magi de Mesrich. They who cleave with all their mental powers to God, they have lost their existence. Like a drop which has fallen into the great sea and has come to its root and therefore is one with the waters of the sea and it is not possible to recognize it as a separate thing at all. Um, this may be the most profound <laughs> bit we've studied so far. You know, before you made a comment about that the Torah doesn't have a lot of emotion in it. Mm-hmm. It's there for us to put, we put our emotion in it. Mm-hmm. Now, in, in studying this, it's like, get rid of your intellect. The intellect, which is something when you're like acting, you know, don't think. Become. 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 So, the combination of those two things is what's rattling around in my brain, which I can't give shape to because I'm just kind of spewing. Good. This is the place for spewing. This is holy spewing. It's like a dichotomy and dichotomy. That we're, you know, dealing with. Like, words are just so lifted. The you're having trouble getting at it yeah. with words is because it's ineffable. Some of this is the whole Yudhe business, the ineffable name of God. Why is it ineffable? Because ultimately we're talking about something beyond words, something that you, we can't speak about. And so always when we're talking about these things, it's very hard, even for me to teach it, it's very hard because... I don't know how to say it even in a way that I get it, but it took somebody trying to explain it to me till I got it, right? And so we use different kinds of words. We use metaphors. We use, you know, whatever. Art is one way to get at it. So we have the great good fortune. A great segue, right? So um, art, right? You know, the art of metaphor that we just had with the ocean. That's one of the best ways for me to understand it. We have here a beautiful, beautiful artistic uh, representation of Yaakov's dream. Oh my oh, is that Elena's work? That is Elena Allen's oh. And may I just tell you work. that it was the rabbi who helped me. I was unable to finish this painting for years. And it was the it was last year or two hearing her lecture on the same Parsha that enabled me to put in 
the angels and God through the, through the yud heh vav heh and I hadn't been able to figure out how to get God and the angels in there without being trite and right right so 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 what she's so what she's saying is the angels are represented here in her painting in gold uh, paint but it's the name of God yud heh vav heh written in vertical form, because we get that God is standing on it. Now, on what? Right on the ground, on the ladder, on Yaakov, right? Um, so standing. So she's got the name of God standing, like a monument, like a pillar. Um, and it's ambiguous. Is it on the ladder? Is it on the ground? It's possibly, as we're learning from this, everywhere. Um, and those that for her is the representation of Malach. Of message, of messenger. Where is this painting going? This hangs in Matt Davidson's office because Elena very generously donated it to the synagogue. Um, And so... I felt like I owed it to you. (laughs) You made me able to finish it. Um, So just another way, right, of interpreting this amazing... Vertical. Yud hey vav hey. Yud hey vav hey. Yud hey vav hey. Right. Yud hey vav hey. So it's so she was from what I understood she had a hard time putting the angels into a, a visual that wasn't going to look like you know a Hallmark card like what do you, right and, and the epiphany happened in Torah study of you know of it being the the name of God right as a the the, the messengers are really a representation of the divine. Um, so beautiful so you can go to Matt's office to visit it anytime you like Um, and may it inspire all of us to uh, dig into wherever we feel challenged Elena felt challenged by finishing this piece may we not get all caught up in judging what what our work is whatever that is may we stay out of monkey mind about it uh, and may we lean into the challenge where we feel called and inspired to do so that we may create like this piece um, and what we do in here true beauty uh, in this world. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.